For our longtime listeners, we've got a returning author this week. National Book Award winner and U.S. Marine Corps veteran Phil Cly closed out our second season, and now he's back reading from his essay, The Citizen Soldier, Moral Risk in the Modern Military. This is Phil Cly. You're listening to Storybound. I'm going to be reading an essay from Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War. And it's one of the essays that I wrote as I was trying to come to grips with what it meant to be a veteran, what it meant to be a soldier, what it meant to be an American citizen in these very sort of strange wars that we have, wars fought with an all-volunteer force, with this tiny fraction of our country, wars that don't seem to end. And... It's a question that I keep coming back to. We're in a situation where we have a military presence all around the globe. We're killing people in a number of countries, so it's difficult to say how many because that information is not always readily available. And I just find it a a peculiar, a morally troubling place for us to be in as a country when war is something that happens on a kind of, on a, on a back burner with very little public attention, very little public oversight and very little public accountability. But that doesn't mean that the sort of moral questions caused by being a nation of war aren't still present and things that we all need to grapple with. And this essay is one of, one of the first attempts that I made to really try and think about my place in all of that. And it's called Citizen Soldier, Moral Risk and the Modern Military. Published May 24th, 2016. The rumor was he'd killed an Iraqi soldier with his bare hands, or maybe bashed his head in with a radio, something to that effect. Either way, during inspections at Officer Candidate School, the Marine Corps version of boot camp for officers, he was the sergeant instructor who asked the hardest, the craziest questions. No softballs, no, no, who's the old man of the Marine Corps, or what's your first general order? The first time he paced down the squad bay, all of us at attention in front of our racks, he grilled the would-be infantry guys with, would it bother you? ordering men into an assault where you know some will die. And the would-be pilots with, Do you think you could drop a bomb on an enemy target, knowing you might also kill women and kids? When he got to me, down at the end, he unloaded one of his more involved hypotheticals. All right, candidate, say you think there's an insurgent in a house and you call in air support. But then, when you walk through the rubble, there's no insurgents, just this dead Iraqi civilian with his brain spilling out of his head, his legs still twitching, and a little Iraqi kid at his side asking you why his father won't get up. So, 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 so. what are you going to tell that Iraqi kid? Amid all the play acting of OCS, screaming, kill, 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 with every movement during training exercise, singing cadences about how tough we are, about how much we relish violence, this felt like a valuable corrective. In his own way, that sergeant instructor was trying to clue us into something few people give enough thought to when they sign up. 
Joining the Marine Corps isn't just about exposing yourself to the trials and risks of combat. It's also about exposing yourself to moral risk. I never had to explain to an Iraqi child that I'd killed his father. As a public affairs officer, working with the media and running an office of Marine journalists, I was never even in combat. And my service in Iraq was during a time when things seemed to be getting better. But that period was just one small part of the disastrous war I chose to have a stake in. We all volunteered. A friend of mine and a five-tour Marine veteran, Elliot Ackerman, said to me once, I chose it and I kept choosing it. There's a sort of sadness associated with that. As a former Marine, I've watched the unraveling of Iraq with a sense of grief, rage, and guilt. As an American citizen, I felt the same, though when I try to trace the precise lines of responsibility of a civilian versus a veteran, I get all tangled up. The military ethicist Martin Cook claims there is an implicit moral contract between the nation and its soldiers, which seems straightforward, but as the mission of the military has morphed and changed, it's hard to see what that contract consists of. A decade after I joined the Marines, I'm left wondering what obligations I incurred as a result of that choice, and what obligations I share with the rest of my country to our wars and to the men and women who fight them. What, precisely, was the bargain that I struck when I raised my hand and swore to defend my country against all enemies, foreign and domestic? It was somewhat surprising, to me anyway, and certainly to my parents, that I wound up in the Marines. I wasn't from a military family. My father had served in the Peace Corps. My mother was working in international medical development. If you'd asked me what I wanted to do post-college, I would have told you I wanted to become a career diplomat, like my maternal grandfather. I had no interest in going to war. Operation Desert Storm was the first major world event to make an impression on me, though to my seven-year-old self, the news coverage showing grainy videos of smart bombs unerringly finding their targets made those hits seem less a victory of soldiers than a triumph of technology. The murky, muddy conflicts in Mogadishu and the Balkans registered only vaguely. War, to my mind, meant World War II or Vietnam. The first I thought of as an epic success, the second as a horrific failure, but both were conflicts capable of capturing the attention of our whole society, not something struggling for airtime against a presidential sex scandal. So I didn't get my ideas about war from the news or from the wars actually being fought during my teenage years. I got my ideas from books. Reading novels like Joseph Heller's Catch-22 or Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried, I learned to see war as pointless suffering, absurdity, a spectacle of man's inhumanity to man. Yet narrative nonfiction told me something different, particularly the narrative nonfiction about World War II, a genre really getting off the ground in the late 1990s and early aughts. Perhaps this was a belated result of the Gulf War, during which the military seemed to have shaken off its post-Vietnam malaise and shown that, yes, yeah, God yeah, damn it, yeah. we can win something and win it good. Books like Stephen Ambrose's Band of Brothers and Tom Brokaw's The Greatest Generation went hand in hand with movies like Saving Private Ryan to present a vision of remarkable heroism in a world that desperately needed it. In short, my novels and my histories were sending very mixed signals. War was either pointless hell, or it was the shining example of American exceptionalism. In middle school, I'd read Ambrose's Citizen Soldiers, about the European theater in World War II. More than anything else, it was the title that stayed with me, the notion of service in a grand cause as the extension of citizenship. 
I never bothered to consider that the mix of draftees and volunteers who served in World War II wasn't so different from the mix of draftees and volunteers who served in Vietnam, or that the atrocities committed in that war were no less horrific than those committed in Vietnam, though no one was likely to write a best-selling book about Vietnam entitled Citizen Soldiers. The title appealed to me, deeply, but I didn't see any grand causes in the 1990s, just a series of messy, limited engagements. Of course, in the history of American warfare, from the Indian Wars to the Philippines to the Banana Wars, it was the grand causes that were the anomalies, not the brush fire wars at the edge of empire. Then 9-11 happened. We all have our stories of where we were that day. Mine is that I was in the woods, hiking the Appalachian Trail. As my little group of hikers scrambled over the rough paths, we kept running into people telling stories of planes hitting the World Trade Center. It sounded preposterous, the sort of rumor that could easily spread in an isolated place in the days before everyone had a smartphone. But we kept hearing the story in ever more detail until it became clear, particularly for those of us from New York, that we had to leave the woods. I can't say that I joined the military because of 9-11. Not exactly. By the time I got around to it, the main U.S. military effort had shifted to Iraq, a war I'd supported, though one I never associated with Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden. But without 9-11, we might not have been at war there, and if we hadn't been at war, I wouldn't have joined. It was a strange time to make the decision, or at least it seemed strange to many of my classmates and professors. I raised my hand and swore my oath of office on May 11th, 2005. It was a year and a half after Saddam Hussein's capture. The weapons of mass destruction had not been found. The insurgency was growing. It wasn't just the wisdom of the invasion that was in doubt, but also the competence of the policymakers. Then Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld had been proven wrong about almost every major post-invasion decision, from troop levels to post-war reconstruction funds. Anybody paying attention could tell that Iraq was spiraling into chaos and the once jubilant public mood about our involvement in the war, with over 70% of Americans in 2003 nodding along in approval, was souring. But the potential for failure and the horrific cost in terms of human lives that failure would entail only underscored for me why I should do my part. This was my grand cause, my test of citizenship. Citizen Soldiers versus Base Hirelings. The highly professional all-volunteer force I joined, though, wouldn't have fit with the Founding Fathers' conception of citizen soldiers. They distrusted standing armies. Alexander Hamilton thought Congress should vote every two years upon the propriety of keeping a military force on foot. James Madison claimed, Armies kept up under the pretext of defending have enslaved the people. And Thomas Jefferson suggested the Greeks and the Romans were wise to put into the hands of their rulers no such engine of oppression as a standing army. They wanted to rely on the people, not on professionals. According to the historian James Thomas Flexner, at the outset of the Revolutionary War, George Washington had grounded his military thinking on the notion that his virtuous citizen soldiers would prove in combat superior, or at least equal, to the hireling invaders. This was an understandably attractive belief for a group of rebellious colonists with little military experience. 
The historian David McCullough tells that the average American continental soldier viewed the British troops as hardened, battle-scarred veterans, the sweepings of the London and Liverpool slums, debtors, drunks, common criminals and the like who had been bullied and beaten into mindless obedience. Even lower in their eyes were the Hessian troops the British had hired to fight the colonists which were commanded by Lieutenant General Leopold Philipp von Heister. A veteran of many campaigns, von Heister had crankily sailed over from England, touched shore, called for hawk and swallowed large potations to the health of his friends, and then, apparently, set out trying to kill Americans. There's a long tradition of distrust of mercenaries, from Aristotle claiming they turn cowards when the danger puts too great a strain on them, to Machiavelli arguing they're useless and dangerous, disunited, ambitious and without discipline, unfaithful, valiant before friends, cowardly before enemies. And the colonists would likely have agreed with such assessments. Mercenaries were at the bottom of the hierarchy of military excellence, citizen soldiers at the top. We can see this view reflected in George Washington's message to his troops before the first major engagement of the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Long Island. Remember, officers and soldiers, that you are free men. Remember how your courage and spirit have been despised and traduced by your cruel invaders, though they have found by dear experience at Boston, Charlestown, and other places what a few brave men contending in their own land and in best of causes can do against base hirelings and mercenaries. This was in August 1776, and Washington's 19,000 men were about to see whether their civic virtues would triumph over British military skill. The American line stretched out across central Brooklyn, with British troops advancing from the south and the east. Though there was skirmishing during the day on August 26, the first real fighting began in the morning, when a column of Hessians marched up Battle Pass in modern-day Prospect Park. What followed was a disaster. In the unkind phrasing of historian W.J. Wood, Washington and his commanders performed like ungifted amateurs. And that's exactly how the Hessian mercenaries viewed them. The rebels had a very advantageous position in the wood, wrote one Hessian soldier. But when we attacked them courageously in their hiding places, they ran, as all mobs do. Colonel Heinrich von Hieringen, the commander of a Hessian regiment, wrote, the riflemen were mostly spit into the trees with bayonets. These frightful people deserve pity rather than fear. Looking over those he'd captured, von Heeringen sneered, Among the prisoners are many so-called colonels, lieutenant colonels, majors, and other officers who, however, are nothing but mechanics, tailors, shoemakers, wig makers, barbers, etc. Some of them were soundly beaten by our people, who would by no means let such persons pass for officers. It was a rough education for Washington. At the close of the war, he would submit to Congress his Sentiments on a Peace Establishment, which noted that, although a large standing army in time of peace hath ever been considered dangerous to the liberties of a country, yet a few troops under certain circumstances are not only safe, but indispensably necessary. Congress, however, rejected the idea of even a modest standing army for the nation, its only concession being to keep one standing regiment and a battery of artillery. The rest of the new nation's defense would rely mostly on state militias, hence the Second Amendment. 
This idealistic vision of militias as a bulwark of democracy would soon face a harsh reality check. In this case, it was not the British, but the Western Confederacy of American Indians who'd give the Americans their comeuppance. Mixed units of American regulars and militiamen had been fighting these tribes throughout the early 1790s. The first campaign, led by General Josiah Harmar, was meant to chastise the Indian nations who have late been so troublesome. Today, the campaign is known as Harmar's defeat, which tells you all you really need to know about whether or not that happened. The individual battles within that campaign don't have much better titles. There's Hardin's defeat, Hartshorn's defeat, and the Battle of Pumpkin Fields. This last doesn't sound so bad until you learn that it supposedly got its name not because it was fought in a pumpkin field, but because the steam from the scalped skulls of militiamen reminded the victorious American Indians of squash steaming in the autumn air. Harmer was succeeded by General Arthur St. Clair, who, though rather old, rather fat, and afflicted with gout, set out with sanguine expectations that a severe blow might be given to the savages yet. His poorly trained, undisciplined men engaged an equal-sized force at the Battle of the Wabash in November 1791, also known by the considerably more evocative title, The Battle of a Thousand Slain. What followed was the worst military disaster of U.S. history. Of St. Clair's 920 troops, 632 were killed and 264 wounded, a casualty rate of just over 97%. Congress, finally conceding that professionalism did count for something, bowed to the creation of a standing army beyond absolute bare bones. The creation of the army hardly ended the complicated relationship Americans had with professional soldiers. When we come to the Civil War, the first war in which we instituted a national draft, none other than Ulysses S. Grant would call the professional soldiers who'd manned the army prior to the war men who could not do as well in any other occupation. Naturally, he was not talking about his own men, fine citizen soldiers who, risked life for a principle, often men of social standing, competence, or wealth and independence of character. It took a grand cause then, like the Civil War, for military service to count as a civic virtue. And not only was it a civic virtue, it could be what made you American in the first place. During World War I, Assistant Secretary of War Henry Breckinridge maintained that when immigrants and those born in this country rub elbows in a common service to a common fatherland, out comes the hyphen, up goes the stars and stripes. Universal military service will be the elder brother of the public school infusing this American race. During World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt thought military service would Americanize foreigners. To this day, however, there continues to be a cynicism about the motives of those who volunteer for the military. I've been repeatedly told that people don't really enlist because they want to, but because they have to. I remember seeing the poet and playwright Maurice de Call frustrated with an insistent questioner who couldn't accept that an intelligent and sensitive soul might want to join the military, finally just blurt out, I wanted to join the Marine Corps since I was eight years old. And all the veterans I know who are Ivy League graduates have had the unpleasant experience of people acting as though they'd made some sort of bizarre choice to spend time with the peons. At one event, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist explained to me that, though he felt the Iraq War was evil, he didn't feel the soldiers should be blamed for their participation. They were only in service because they had no other options. 
This is the poverty draft. The idea that with the elimination of the draft, we shifted the burden from the whole of society to only the most poor and disadvantaged, who joined the military to get a step up in life and then become cannon fodder. The demographics of the military don't support the image. It's actually the middle class that's best represented, and the numbers of high income and highly educated recruits rose to levels disproportionate to their percentage of the population after the war on terror began. But this notion of a military filled with near-do-wells who are in it only for the money is frustrating, not just because it's insulting or false. It takes the decision to put one's life at risk for one's country and transforms it, as if by magic, magic. into a self-interested act. Veterans have a benefit package. They're paid in full, right? Right, right, right? If the war was a just one and they saved the world against fascism or slavery, maybe more is owed. If not, well, you can pity them but you can't take them seriously as moral agents. There's still more story ahead. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You are listening to Storybound, with author Phil Cly reading from his essay, The Citizen Soldier, Moral Risk in the Modern Military. Not long after ISIS had made headlines by seizing Fallujah and Ramadi, I went to the screening of a documentary about Afghanistan. During the Q&A with the director afterwards, one of the many veterans there stood up. He was a big, tough-looking guy. He must have been the perfect image of a Marine in dress blues. He said, I'm a veteran of Iraq. That used to be something I was incredibly proud of. If you'd asked me just a few years ago to make a resume of my life, not a resume for a job, but a resume of who I was, what I was, all the biggest bullet points would have been Marine Sergeant, Combat Veteran, Lead Marines in Iraq. But now I'm looking at what's happening in Iraq and I'm starting to wonder what I was part of and whether I can be proud of it. Was I part of an evil thing? Because if I was, and I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what my identity is. It was a sharper-edged response to the overseas tragedy than I'd previously heard. Though I'd seen many veterans wondering, what was this all for? They often resolve the question by narrowing their focus. One veteran who served in the Second Battle of Fallujah argued that he didn't think about Bush or Obama or about Iraq and Afghanistan, but about the men he'd served with and what we'd done for each other. In its own way, American pop culture, with its increasing obsession with special operations forces conducting commando-style raids, seems to have come to a similar conclusion. Zero Dark Thirty, Thirteen Hours, and American Sniper offer a vision of war in which highly trained operatives kill undoubtedly evil people, bomb makers and torturers and sadists and thugs of all stripes, without forcing too much consideration about the overall outcome. 
In a raid, the moral stakes seem clear. Let's think only about killing the Butcher, or the evil enemy Sniper, or Osama bin Laden, not about ending the chaos swirling around them. And though these movies have the veneer of nonfiction, their impact isn't so different from the previous generation's Rambo franchise, which Vietnam veteran and author Gustav Hasford argued satisfies our pathetic need to win the war and gives us another coat of whitewash as bumbling do-gooders, innocent American white bread boys pulled down into corruption by wicked orientals. We should have won, and we could have won, Rambo argues, if only the dumb grunts could have been saved by grotesquely muscled civilians who somehow skated the shooting war. This kind of thinking has become operative not just in the movies, but in real life. If you doubt America's commitment, or mine, to see that justice is done, just ask Osama bin Laden. Ask, ask the leader of al-Qaeda in Yemen, who was taken out last year, or the perpetrator of the Benghazi attacks, who sits in a prison cell. When you come after Americans, we go after you. And it may take time, but we have long memories, and our reach has no limits. He received applause, and it's not hard to understand why. Since these kinds of missions don't put troops in the position of holding territory, when we kill or capture a target, we can mark that off as a success, regardless of whether or not we're making a positive impact on the region we're striking. Never mind what's actually happening on the ground in Libya and Yemen right now. If you narrow your scope sufficiently, there's no end to what you don't have to deal with. It's true that in the middle of a deployment, the specifics of any individual unit's experience and the bonds those Marines share might overshadow their sense of the broader mission. But people join the military to be part of something greater than themselves. And ultimately, it's deeply important for service members to be able to feel their sacrifices had a purpose. What is the saving idea of Iraq? In some ways, joining the military is an act of faith in one's country. An act of faith that the country will use your life well. What your piece of a war will be, after all, is mostly a matter of chance. I have friends who joined prior to 9-11 when machine gun instructors still taught recruits to depress the trigger as long as it takes to say, die, commie, die. Die, die, die. I have friends who joined after 9-11 expecting to fight Al-Qaeda, only to invade Iraq. One friend protested the Iraq war, then signed up because he felt the war was unjust, and so he owed the Iraqis a humane, responsible occupation. The army sent him to Afghanistan twice. Another soldier I know, a reservist, had a unit slotted for one of two deployments either to help with the Ebola crisis, a mission few would object to, or to man Guantanamo Bay. Depending on where they went, they knew they'd faced radically different reactions when they came home. Of course, the praise or censure your average American civilian might dole out to those soldiers would in reality just be the doling out of the praise or censure they themselves deserve for being part of a nation that does such things. The difference, though, is that it's impossible for the veteran to pretend he has clean hands. No number of film dramatizations of commandos killing bad guys can move us past the simple reality that Iraq is destroyed, that there is untold suffering overseas, and we as a country have even abandoned most of the translators who risked their lives for us. Yet this fact seems not to have penetrated either the civilians we came home to or the government that sent us. How many 
many American presidents or members of Congress have suffered from PTSD or taken their own lives rather than live any longer with the burden of having declared a war? Asked humanities professor Robert Emmert Meager. None, of course. There's a joke among veterans. Well, we were winning Iraq when I was there. And the reason it's a joke is because to be in the military is to be acutely conscious of how much each person relies on the larger organization. In boot camp, to be called an individual is a slur. A Marine on his or her own is not a militarily significant unit. At the basic school, the orders we were taught to write always included a lost Marine plan, which means every order given carries with it the implicit message, you are nothing without the group. But a soldier doesn't just rely on his squad mates or on the leadership of his platoon and company. There's close air support, communications and logistics, reliable weapons, ammunition and supplies, the entire apparatus of war, all of it ultimately resting on American industry and on the tax dollars that each of us pays. The image of war as armed combat merges into the more extended image of a gigantic labor process, wrote Ernst Junger, a German writer and veteran of World War I. After the Second World War, Kurt Vonnegut would come to a similar conclusion, reflecting not only on the planes and crews, the bullets and bombs and shell fragments, but also where those came from, the factories operating night and day, the transportation lines for the raw materials, and the miners working to extract them. Think too hard about the frontline soldier. You end up thinking about all that was needed to put him there. Today, we're still mobilized for war, though in a manner perfectly designed to ensure we don't think about it too much. Since we have an all-volunteer force, participation in war is a matter of choice, not a requirement of citizenship, and those in the military represent only a tiny fraction of the country, what historian Andrew Basevich calls the 1% army. So the average civilian's chance of knowing any member of the service is correspondingly small. Moreover, we're expanding those aspects of warfighting that fly under the radar. Our drone program continues to grow, as does the Special Operations Forces community, which has expanded from 45,600 Special Forces personnel in 2001 to 70,000 today, with further increases planned. The average American is even less likely to know a drone pilot or a member of a Special Ops unit, or to know much about what they actually do either, since you can't embed a reporter with a drone or with SEAL Team 6. Our Special Operations Command has become, in the words of former Lieutenant Colonel John Nagel, an almost industrial-scale counterterrorism killing machine. Though it's true that citizens do vote for the leaders who run this machine, we've absolved ourselves from demanding a serious debate about it in Congress. We're still operating under a decade-old authorization for use of military force issued in the wake of 9-11, before some of the groups we're currently fighting even existed, and it's unlikely, despite attempts from Senators Tim Kaine and Jeff Flake, that Congress will issue a new one anytime soon. We wage war with or without congressional action, in the words of President Obama at his final State of the Union address, which means that the American public remains insulated from considering the consequences. Even if they voted for the president ordering these strikes, there's seemingly little reason for citizens to feel personally culpable when they go wrong. It's that sense of a personal stake in war that the veteran experiences viscerally, and which is so hard for the civilian to feel. The philosopher Nancy Sherman has explained post-war resentment as resulting from a broken contract between society and the veterans who serve. They may feel guilt toward themselves and resentment at commanders for betrayals, she writes, but also more than we are willing to acknowledge. 
They feel resentment toward us for our indifference toward their wars and afterwars, and for not even having to bear the burden of a war tax for over a decade of war. Reactive emotions like resentment or trust presume some kind of community, or at least are invocations to reinvoke one or convoke one anew. The debt owed them, then, is not simply one of material benefits. There's a remarkable piece in Harper's Magazine titled, It's Not That I'm Lazy, published in 1946 and signed by an anonymous veteran, that argues, There's a kind of emptiness inside me that tells me that I've still got something coming. It's not a pension that I'm looking for. What I paid out wasn't money. It was part of myself. I want to be paid back in kind, in something human. That sounds right to me. Something human. I'm not sure what form it would take. When I first came back from Iraq, I thought it meant a public reckoning with the war, with its costs, not just for Americans, but for Iraqis as well. As time goes by, and particularly as I watch a U.S. presidential debate in which the candidates have offered up carpet bombing, torture, and other kinds of war crimes as the answer to complex problems that the military has long since learned will only worsen if we attempt such simplistic and immoral solutions, I've given up on hoping that will happen anytime soon. If the persistence of U.S. military bases named after Confederate generals is any indication, it might not happen in my lifetime. The Holocaust survivor Jean Amery, considering Germany's post-war rehabilitation, would conclude, society thinks only about its continued existence. Decades later, Ta-Nehisi Coates, considering the difficulty, if not impossibility, of finding solutions for various historic tragedies, would write, I think we all see our theories and visions come to dust in the starving, bleeding, captive land which is everywhere, which is politics. Despite this, I don't see nihilism from my fellow veterans. I see the opposite. I've met veterans who, horrified by the human cost of our wars overseas, have joined groups like the International Refuge Assistance Project or the International Rescue Committee. I've met veterans who've gone into public service one of whom also remained in a reserve unit because, as he put it to me, I want to know the decisions I make might affect me personally. I've met veterans who've lobbied Congress, worked to fight military sexual assault, established literary nonprofits, or worked to make public service, military or otherwise, an expectation within American society. A recent analysis of census data shows that, compared with their peers, veterans volunteer more, give more to charity, vote more often, and are more likely to attend community meetings and join civic groups. This is the kind of civic engagement necessary for the functioning of a democracy. Don't leave yet, there's more story ahead. We'll be right back after this final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with author Phil Cly, and he's reading from his essay, The Citizen Soldier, Moral Risk in the Modern Military. In 2007, Rhodes Scholar and Navy SEAL Eric Greitens made a visit to the National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. The men and women he found there, including amputees and serious burn victims, generally were eager to return to their units, though that would in many cases be impossible. These vets had been repeatedly thanked for their service, 
They'd been assured that they were heroes and that they had the support of a grateful nation. But Crichton's found what energized them was something different. Four words. We still need you. Crichton's, who was hoping to win the Republican nomination in the Missouri governor's race this year, went on to found The Mission Continues, an organization that awards community service fellowships that redeploy post-9-11 veterans back to their communities to work on projects from education to housing and beyond. One study found that though these veterans had high rates of traumatic brain injury, 52%, PTSD, 64%, and depression, 28%, the opportunity to feel that they had made a contribution led to remarkably positive post-fellowship experiences. 86% reported that the fellowship was a positive, life-changing experience. 71% went on to pursue further education. 86% transferred their military skills to civilian employment. And large majorities reported that the fellowships helped them become community leaders able to teach others the value of service. While most watch the suffering of the world on their TV, we act rapidly and with great purpose, wrote Marine sniper Clay Hunt, a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, who provided relief efforts with the veteran-led disaster response organization Team Rubicon in the wake of earthquakes in Chile and Haiti, raised money for wounded veterans, and helped lobby Congress for veterans' benefits. Not counting the cost, and without hope for reward, we simply refuse to watch our world suffer when we have the skills and the means to alleviate some of that suffering for as many people as we can reach. Inaction. Clay Hunt took his own life in March 2011. His story may be a heroic tale of a Marine who served with distinction and came home determined to continue serving, but it is also the much darker story of a Marine who was never able to get the help he himself needed. Once out of the Corps, Hunt struggled with the Veterans Administration over his disability rating and his treatment. He appealed the low level of his benefits only to face one bureaucratic hurdle after another, including the VA losing his files the process dragging out for 18 months. As for his medical care, he got almost no counseling for his post-traumatic stress, but was instead prescribed a variety of drugs, none of which seemed to help. He felt he'd been used as a guinea pig for one failed treatment after another. After moving to Houston, he waited months for his first appointment with a psychiatrist and then found the appointment so stressful he resolved never to return. Two weeks later, he killed himself. True integration back into society can be overwhelmingly difficult for veterans struggling with unbearable physical or mental injuries. Hence, the bare minimum of the payment veterans are due, a reliable Veterans Administration, improved mental health care, and adequate help transitioning to the civilian sector. The Clay Hunt Suicide Prevention for American Veterans SAV, Act that President Obama signed into law in 2015 is intended to address some of these needs. But this is just a starting place. It does not fully repay the debt to a Marine suffering post-traumatic stress if we provide him access to competent mental health care, just as we don't fully repay the debt to a soldier who lost a limb by handing her a well-made prosthetic. And in the wake of a war that has left whole societies shattered, hundreds of thousands of lives lost and more displaced, the debt cannot be solely to an individual or even to a class of individuals, like veterans. A therapeutic approach, however necessary, can only heal wounds. Our problems run deeper than that. I began this essay contemplating the oath I swore as a Marine to support and defend the Constitution. At the time, I took the oath, 
It felt like a special and precious burden I was taking on, sworn to defend not simply the physical security of my homeland, but to defend something broader, our founding document, and thus the set of ideals embedded within it. Years later, looking through the section in the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service's Citizens' Almanac on Citizens' Responsibilities, I was embarrassed to realize my obligations as a Marine were not so unique. The very first responsibility listed is to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So I had already owed that to my country by virtue of my birth and the privilege of being American. The divide between the civilian and the service member, then, need not feel so wide. Perhaps the way forward is merely through living up to those ideals through action, and a greater commitment by the citizenry to the institutions of American civic life that so many veterans are working to rebuild. Teddy Roosevelt once claimed a healthy society would regard the man who shirks his duty to the state in time of peace as being only one degree worse than the man who thus shirks it in time of war. A great many of our men rather plume themselves upon being good citizens if they even vote, yet voting is the very least of their duties. That seems right to me. The exact nature of those additional duties will depend on the individual's principles. What is undeniable, though, is that there is always a way to serve, to help bend the power and potential of the United States toward the good. No civilian can assume the moral burdens felt at a gut level by participants in war, but all can show an equal commitment to their country, an equal assumption of the obligations inherent in citizenship, and an equal bias for action. Ideals are one thing, the messy business of putting them into practice is another. That means giving up on any claim to moral purity. That means getting your hands dirty. This was an adaptation of Phil Cly's essay, The Citizen Soldier, Moral Risk, and the Modern Military, originally written for and published by the Brookings Institution, based in Washington, DC. You might also want to check out Phil's first appearance on the show, season two, episode 10. Thank you to Phil for reading, and thank you to Epidemic Sound. Production assistance by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, and Morgan Swift from the Podglomerate. Audio cleanup by Courtney Deans. Social media help from Sylvia Belltill. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mixing engineer is Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, and hosting are done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are every Tuesday. See you then.
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.